Our text for meditation, this fourth Sunday in Advent, is on our Gospel reading. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Hear the word of our Lord. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah, and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I love this passage, and I'm excited to talk about it at length. But first, have you ever wondered about the crowds? Our Lord Jesus attracted many, many people all around him. We hear every year about the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, not counting women and children, gathered around our Lord just to be near him and hear him speak. And that's just one moment in his history. So many in the first century loved being in the presence of Jesus, even when they followed him for the wrong reasons. Sometimes it was them wanting to fill their belly with fish and bread. Other times it was because they wanted him to be an earthly king. Sometimes it was both at the same time. They did not always know exactly what made the Messiah so special. It seems to me, however, that their bad motivations reveal how the human heart, ignorant of the truth here, was willing to put just any reason on top of the inexplicable magnetism people felt towards our Lord Jesus. The only people who didn't have this instinct, this natural inclination to want to be with Christ, were those with hardened hearts. The Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and their more devoted followers. This draw that people have to Christ is evident all over the Gospels. But even before Christ was born in his human nature, this draw was already present in the womb. 
In utero, St. John the Baptist leaps for joy when the unborn Jesus is present, and the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth to open her mouth with effusive praise. Being near Christ Jesus is such an honor, so wonderful, that Elizabeth can only ask, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The same happens to us. Ever since his crucifixion, something was placed in our hearts that just leads all people to see that indeed he is the Savior, whether they admit it or not. Our Lord even comments on this in John 12:32, saying, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Ever since he was crucified, the call has rung out to all humanity. If ever there was a Lutheran take or version of the doctrine of prevenient grace, it is simply this. There is something about Jesus Christ that draws humanity to him, a specificity of the law's mirror. Is this vague? Absolutely. But Lutheran theology is messy and we like it that way. See, before this point, people understood through the inner witness of the law written on their hearts that they needed a savior. But there is so little talk of an actual savior in non-Hebrew literature that the tack we see with Latin, Greek, and Oriental writings is a devolution into skepticism, nihilism, or asceticism. But with Christ, suddenly the whole world starts thinking about a savior. We have received the call to go to Christ, oftentimes with a feeling of longing. Maybe it is not a feeling, but a desire, a disposition, often accompanied by a feeling. It is not faith, as then all would believe and be saved. To the contrary, it is a call to faith, which persists even when one is converted. The Apostle St. Paul agonized in prison about whether he should rejoice over an impending death simply because he wanted to be with Christ. This is not enthusiasm or charismania or anything. It is not subjectivity to simply say that Jesus calls, and we naturally, on account of the law, want to go to the Savior that it points to. In a certain sense, Every human being is aware of this, per Romans 1, 18-21 and 10, verse 18. Of course, sin gets in the way of that. It blunts this call, tries to cut it off and cauterize the wound. Christ calls to us, but our sin tries to muffle the ears of our souls, so to speak, so that we cannot hear it. Sin weakens the signal of that call, and it weakens the faith of those who obeyed it when they first heard the word preached to them. How do we repair it? What do we do to heal the wound caused by sin and make Christ's presence more clear? The answer to that is to look extranos, outside ourselves, for the restoration which God offers. We look to the means of grace promised in Scripture. Hearing the word, engaging in confession and absolution, remembering our baptism, listening to the gospel preached, and taking communion. Today, let's focus on that last one, on the Eucharist, because it is the most explicit sacrament by which we are shown to be in the presence of Christ himself. We go to the altar and receive communion. 
where we attest as Lutherans that Christ comes with his body and blood to strengthen and refresh us in faith and in the forgiveness of our sins. By his atoning work on the cross, our Lord obliterates the destructive effects of our iniquity, and thus the signal is strengthened once more when this forgiveness is granted to us yet again with his sacramental presence. But not just forgiveness. After all, forgiveness is granted to us in absolution. Our baptisms in prayer for forgiveness and so forth. Our God has fully opened every spigot of mercy which could be said to apply the merits of Christ in the atonement to ourselves, and he has broken off the handles. There are times, dare I say it, when we are not even aware that we have sinned. Yet living in a penitent faith means even then we receive forgiveness from the God whose mercies are new every morning. The sacrament of the altar, like every other means of grace, does this as well. But it also answers the call, the draw that we have. St. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How better does he draw near unto us than with the real presence of his only Son? With that said, let's ruminate on the Eucharist for a moment. Christ comes to us bringing forgiveness and a strengthened, refreshed faith. Such is the power of his presence. But Christ also says his blood is the new covenant. So what would happen if someone had the Eucharist every day? Every hour, every minute, every second, for nine months? What happens when the new covenant is right there in you constantly? I would wager that a person granted such a privilege would have very, very, very strong faith. That person would enjoy the presence of Christ and answer the call, the draw to our Lord quite eagerly. And this person would not be able to contain the joy present within. This brings us, of course, to Mary. Mary is the first Ark of the New Covenant. I say this because Christ has stated plainly in the words of institution that his blood, more properly he himself, his life, is the New Covenant. And Mary is indeed the Theotokos, the God-bearer, whom our Lord used as a vessel for the Incarnation. Now you too, beloved, are an ark of sorts, if indeed you have been party to the sacrament of the altar. Jesus doesn't stutter. If you have partaken of Christ's blood, this means in no uncertain terms that you have the covenant with you and you are a living vessel for him. What makes Mary special is that she is the first Ark of the New Covenant. Permit me a little speculation, though. Because we know that being pregnant and taking communion are obviously not the same thing normally, but it seems from our Gospel text today that she certainly received great benefit to her faith with the infant Christ in her womb. There was something sacramental about this pregnancy, the Holy Spirit inspires Elizabeth to know that she is in the presence of God when she is near Mary. But Mary is shown and proclaims that the Christ child in her womb is her Savior. Beloved, with the Magnificat, 
Mary is the first to use the word Savior in all of the New Testament. That word does not appear at all until Luke 1.47. Just think of this young woman. We have zero evidence she ever attended seminary or had some deep theological education. She was poor and was in a position where most would have called her an adulterous sinner. Yet despite these circumstances that just scream ignorance, the virgin somehow knew and could proclaim that God is her Savior. She had a faith in Christ before Christ was born and trusted God in ways that the apostles would lack until after Christ had risen from the dead. Elizabeth proclaims in verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Indeed, Mary had held simple faith in what Gabriel told her would happen. Yet with the presence of Christ in her, she is inspired to speak about the content of her faith in the words of the Magnificat. Let us explore this. It sounds pretty Lutheran if you ask me. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary recognizes that God is her Savior, that she is saved, having full assurance. She is assured of this by the things God has done for her, namely, in appointing her to be the God-bearer. She says, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary recognizes that she is blessed, that God has done great things for her, that God is holy. Mary points to God's grace poured out on her, not to any merit of her own. She goes on to say, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The virgin points Elizabeth, indeed the readers and hearers of scripture as well, to God as the provider of both grace and mercy for all who fear him. The next verses all point to the same thing. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Here, she points to the ultimate justice that God has begun with the incarnation, that this is an expression of God's might just as much as it is his benevolence. She speaks a final line saying, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This makes it clear that with the incarnation of Christ, God is fulfilling promises he made to his people all the way back to Abraham. Here, Mary is emphasizing something that St. John will later speak of in his Gospel and in Revelation. All of the scriptures point to Christ, even the Old Testament. Let's summarize this. God single-handedly pours his mercy and his grace upon us such that he is our Savior. 
Those who fear him receive his blessings, as now, with the advent of Christ, he begins the process of making all things new and setting all things right. This is something he had promised to do since the days of the patriarchs, and now he is going about doing it. This is just about the most explicit gospel statement someone could have ever made before Christ's ministry was begun. Now, Mary is no theologian. If she were, such a vocation would have been sinful for her to inhabit, per 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15. This is not her waving around a Masters of Divinity or a dogmatics textbook and telling us what we ought to believe. No, my friends. What is happening here is more of a prophetic occurrence. Mary speaks the word of God by divine inspiration, and I have a strong suspicion that it is by the presence of Christ who abode in her at the time. The same thing happened to Mary that happened to Elizabeth, only stronger. The infant Jesus being there tells us why Mary pointed to everything Jesus was going to do why she speaks of God as her and our Savior. She simply cannot help it, as the Holy Spirit moves her to give words to the majesty of the covenant who dwelt in her womb. You might call it a silly speculation, but I have no other explanation I can give. More important than this speculation on my part, though, is the actual content of the Magnificat, what she actually says. Mary points outside herself to her salvation. She sees that it is by God's grace unto her that she calls him Savior. There is no merit on her part to which she can point but to God who deserves all glory for the wonderful things he is doing for her and all believers. With this statement, she points to grace alone and echoes the call that we all experience as believers. Thirty-three years before Christ went to the cross, Mary has saving faith in our Lord and engages in the Great Commission by God's empowerment, proclaiming the good news to all around. I would say she is the first Christian. She is the first Ark of the New Covenant and thus deserves our respect. On account of her example, may our devotion to our Lord Jesus, our Savior and hers, be increased all the more. Let us receive and rejoice in the call. Now the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.